All right, good morning to you all and to those online on this Lord's Day. Uh, my name is Philip Sa, and I'm one of the elders here. Pastor Nate is on a much belated reprieve, so I have the privilege of declaring God's word today. Uh, before we open up our passage, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank you for gathering us, your children, in this sanctuary. With all that is going on in the world, in our lives, in your house, we are reoriented to what is good. As we turn to your word, Holy Spirit, would you illumine our minds, implant these truths into our hearts, and equip us to be heralds of the gospel. Help us to see more clearly your power and the great salvation that was wrought for us by our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, as you open up your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 5, uh, I'd like to provide some background. Uh, this account occurs in the midst of Israel's spiritual decline. It's a downward spiral of, uh, a spiral of ungodly kings and idolatry. Elisha has taken up the prophetic office from Elijah, and Israel is in constant conflict with their neighbors, and in this case, Syria. But this account of Naaman is a bright spot, reminding us of God's continued faithfulness, even in dark times. So now let us stand for the reading of God's word. Let us behold the word of God. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord has given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of the raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who's in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord. Thus and so, uh, so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Assyria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he's making a quarrel with me. But when, the, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come, to me, okay, come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me 
and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Parfar, uh, Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he went and he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him and said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Who has the power to kill and make alive? Who controls the destiny of mankind? The world would say, we do. Man has the power to forge progress. Mankind controls its destiny through science and technology. Reflecting on the recent advances in AI and considering the future of human progress, the technologist Ray Kurzweil was asked if he thought God exists. And he answered, not yet, implying that divine power is within our grasp. But what becomes of this optimism when faced with finitude, when our power and resources cannot deliver? Naaman, a mighty man, faced such a situation, and through some unexpected circumstances, surprising contrasts, and a confluence of characters, Naaman encountered the truth that would change his destiny, that would lead him to new life forevermore. And it is this, that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. Through the word today, my prayer is that you and I would see the greatness of our God more clearly and in turn trust him, glorify him in greater measure. And I want to draw out three truths from our passage today. And the first is this, God is in control of the big and small. He's in control of the big and small. Our passage today opens up on a grand scale. That Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor. Why? Because by him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. Now it's great and all that Naaman was an important man involved in important things. But why does God give aid to the enemy? This just doesn't sit right. Syria was a thorn in Israel's side. Not too many chapters back in 1 Kings 22, the Syrians killed the king of Israel, albeit the wicked Ahab, in battle. And here, God gives victory to a man who leads raids against God's people and puts a kidnapped girl to forced servitude. What gives? 
In one aspect, we see the reality that God is not only sovereign over the kingdom of grace, but he is also sovereign over the kingdom of man. There is no domain outside his rule. From the fixed order of the universe to the rise and fall of nations, even the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, Proverbs 21. Another aspect is that in his sovereignty, he somehow always accomplishes his will. In this case, God had raised up Syria to discipline his own people, meeting out the covenant curses he established long ago to bring about their repentance. And Moses warned them in Deuteronomy 28 that if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, your God, or be careful to do all his commandments, he will cause you to be defeated before your enemies, that he will bring a nation against you from far away, swooping down like an eagle. This particular example is a hard truth, but it proves the larger point that even at the grandest scale, the Lord is in control. He accomplishes his will, and he works all things, even in judgment, for the good of his people. Now the verse continues that this great commander, a mighty man of valor, was a leper. The narrative zooms in from the macro to the micro on the personal affairs of Naaman. Now imagine if you were him, a master in the art of war. Kings respect him, and the nations fear him, but he has a major blemish on his otherwise glorious life. Of all diseases, leprosy, lesions and sores all over your body, your face, your limbs disfigured, nerve damage, pain and shame. For such a powerful figure, this affliction rendered him powerless. But before you feel too bad, let's not forget that this is a bad dude. If anything, he got what he deserved. But somehow through this leprosy, we, think, we see things turn out in his favor, almost as if someone is watching out for him. For starters, we have this little Israelite girl living in her captor's house. We don't know much about her. We don't know her name, but for her oppressor's benefit, she, subjects, she suggests something preposterous, that he, the foreign general, should cross enemy lines, meet some prophet as if he were better than the cult priests in Syria, to find the healing he had been yearning for. Out of sheer desperation, Naaman calls up his boss to arrange this meeting. So the king of Syria writes to the king of Israel, but messes it up. His, his letter mentions nothing about a prophet. In receiving this, and instead he puts it on the king of Israel to cure Naaman. In receiving this letter, you would think that the king of Israel would do the right thing. But instead, he despairs and starts tearing his clothes 
And he also mentions nothing about the prophet. Somehow, as if a bird told him, Elisha finds out what's going on. Naaman is now on his way to meet Elisha, but stops first by the ATM. And he pulls out in today's equivalent of $5 million and throws in some clothes for good measure. But it was all for naught because Elisha doesn't even meet him and sends him off to take a bath in some river. Naaman sees the ridiculous, ridiculousness of this whole situation and starts to rage. And in his hot anger, he forgets an important detail. If you compare what Elisha says in verse 10 to what Naaman plays back in verse 12, you see that Naaman misses the bit about your flesh shall be restored. But his servants, who cared enough about him, points this out in verse 13. My father, it is a great word that this prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? As if to say, are you sure that's all he said? So Naaman humbles himself, goes down to the river, dips in the water, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Through these crazy circumstances and the confluence of characters, God drew Naaman, his little child, to himself. So much went wrong in this chain of events. It was a miracle that things worked out. But as my seminary professor would always say, God is active in every narrative, whether he's mentioned or not. And though there is mystery to what he is doing, what we can know for sure is that in the big and the small, the Lord is in control. He accomplishes his will, and he works things for the good of his people. This is the comfort especially for us in our day. There's so much going on in the world around us. Wars, the shifting winds of culture, a slowing economy. And at the same time, there's a lot going on in our lives. I know some of you are dealing with heavy matters, ailing loved ones, death in the family, financial uncertainty. We have such little control over these things, and sometimes things just don't make sense, and it's a lot to bear. May Naaman's story encourage you that God is in control in the least to the greatest. He is always involved. He is always near. And we have a high priest in heaven who is watching out for us, whoever lives to make intercession for us. So take heart that our Lord is mindful of us, that he knows our needs even before we ask. And in any circumstance, whether good or bad, to the mundane or the unexpected, let us draw near to him knowing that he is accomplishing his good purposes in us. And especially when in seasons where God seems far off, when we feel forgotten, 
Let us especially try to see his many graces in the little things of our lives. I remember the late Tim Keller shared a story where he was late for a meeting in a rush and he needed to find parking. So he started to pray, God, I'm late. Please provide a parking spot for me. And as he was praying, someone was pulling out right in front of the building. And he stopped praying. He said, God, never mind. I found one. (laughs) This is a funny but profound example of how often we overlook his daily mercies. So may we remember that whether in the big or the small, nothing can separate us from his love. Which brings us to our second truth. God mightily blesses childlike faith. Now, we're entering the holiday season, and the time is coming to watch our favorite Christmas movie, whether it is Miracle on 34th Street, Santa Claus with Tim Allen, or even Elf. I don't know about you, but I just feel better after watching these movies. And I think a common element that makes these stories so compelling is the contrast of belief between the young and the old. It's not the mature, the sophisticated, that first realize that Santa Claus is real. Rather, it is the simple, the child, that sees the truth that others miss. And a similar dynamic is at play here. Now, in the chapters prior to our text, we say how bad things are in Israel. And the question is posed, is it because there is no God in Israel that the king inquires of foreign gods? Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? And it's interesting to see the contrasting faith of the characters here, and we'll focus on three of them. First, we have the king of Israel, likely King Jehoram. One would expect him to be a paragon of faith. An Israelite king was to be like David, a man after God's own heart, leading the people to worship the Most High God. He was to be like Josiah, who humbles himself before the Lord and is zealous for his name. But instead, when confronted with the situation, the king doesn't look to God, but only considers himself. Am I God? To kill and make alive, he laments. Instead of seeing gospel opportunity, he was blinded by despair. And in all of this, he showed himself a faithless coward in a mighty office. And he was emblematic of Israel's dire strait, or dire state. By contrast, we have another office bearer, the prophet Elisha who indeed was a man of God, yet seems to have some questionable manners. Now, we're all taught from a very young age that when you invite someone over and they knock on the door, you answer the door and let them in. But Elisha does no such thing. If that weren't enough, he sends Naaman far away to the Jordan River. If you see in the map, this isn't down the street. It's about 20 to 30 miles away. It's a long journey. Now, you know the biblical prophets. 
they have their rough edges. Their speech isn't the most polished. They're not into the pleasantries. But his actions just seem downright rude. And what makes it more interesting that in the, just the prior chapter, chapter 4, he meets with those in need, and he's directly involved in those miracles. So what's going on here? I think verses 10 through 12 are instructive. Name and thought that Elisha would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? It is clear from the context that Naaman was thinking on the human plane, that the solution would be a matter of earthly power, hence his inquiry to the king of Israel, a matter of wealth with his gold and silver, about finding the right miracle worker who could summon God, about finding the right venue for healing. But by not meeting him, by sending him a far distance, Elisha was showing Naaman that his healing would not be of the earthly realm. Rather, it would come from above. As a commentator says, the way the cure has been wrought made it clear to Naaman that his healing was delivered by the living Lord at a distance from the prophet. Ambiguity would have remained had Elisha been involved. So by getting out of the way, Elisha put the locus of Naaman's faith and thanksgiving in God alone. Unlike the king, Elisha proved himself a humble servant of the mighty God. And lastly, we have the little girl, a humble child who believed in a mighty God. This is especially remarkable given her kidnapping and servitude. Who knows what became of her family, whether she would ever return home. One would expect her to be angry and bitter. If it were me, I'd let the the wicked leper die. But instead, this little girl showed love to her enemy. She shared her faith, and that made all the difference. There's a beautiful wordplay in the Hebrew. What began with this na'ara katana, this little girl, ends with Naaman's flesh being restored like that of a na'ar katon, a little child. Because of this Israelite girl, through these events, the Lord worked a childlike faith in Naaman, and he was born again. And he experienced the mighty blessing of God. Let this be an encouragement for us today to be as little children who boast in the power of God. As Jesus declared in Matthew 18, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It is true that we are dependent as a child, that we are in constant need of grace. But it is easy to say and know these things. But do we live that way? 
Of course I should be humble. But do I thank God that I'm like, not like other men? Surely we should depend on God. But do we rely on the strength of our own arm? We may admit to our weaknesses. But do we admit that we are weak? Some of you, including myself, would do well to repent not only of our weakness, but of our strength. So as children of God, let us be humble, not making much of ourselves, but making much of our great God. As it says in Jeremiah 9, let not the, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. And this brings us to our final truth for today. God delights to adopt the outcast. One of my favorite movies is Gladiator with Russell Crowe. And it opens up with the aging emperor, uh, Marcus Aurelius, considering his succession and the future of the Roman Empire. He's torn between his son Commodus and Maximus, the general of his army, but not of royal blood. What becomes apparent is that the natural son Commodus is driven by selfish, selfish ambition and has no love for the father. Maximus, on the other hand, loves the father. He loves the people. He loves the kingdom. And the question becomes, who will be the heir? Who's the true son? And this matter of sonship is a central theme in the history of Israel. God declares Israel to be his firstborn son. This was the nation he had set his, set his love on, a people that would be most blessed. According to Romans, Israel was entrusted with the oracles of God. To them belonged the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, and the patriarchs. Despite such a rich heritage, despite such favor, Israel was a stiff-necked son, high-handed in rebellion, and they were like the natural son with no love for the father. On the, hand, on the other hand, there's Naaman, who is the ultimate outsider. He was a foreigner to the covenant community, let alone a worshiper of a foreign god. He was an enemy, and his leprosy was of significance. It was not only a gruesome disease, but it was a visible symbol of sin's destructive power. Like sin, a leper was unclean, unsightly, contagious, and it was to be isolated from the people in the community. According to Le Leviticus 13, they were to wear torn clothes, let the hair of his head hang loose and cry, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he was, has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling should be outside the camp. And as Rosario Butterfield points out, the stigma was devastating. 
This disease could transform a beloved father or mother into a despised outcast overnight. One day you can enjoy belonging, touch, recognition, value. The next, you are as good as garbage. So from Israel's perspective, Naaman was a reviled outcast. And that such a blessing would come to him was scandalous. Jesus would later point out in Luke 4, 27, that there were many lepers in Israel in the time of uh, prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. You see, Naaman's healing was a rebuke to Israel. That what matters more than being a natural son is to be a true spiritual son. In Romans 9, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all the children of Abraham uh, are the children of Abraham, but it is those who are the sons, those who, are, who have faith who are the sons of Abraham. God showed through Naaman that he adopts the outcast to any who come to him in faith, and he delights to make them heirs of the promise. To conclude, although Naaman lived in a different time, his story is our story as well. Like Naaman, we were once outcasts, cast out of the garden in Adam. Like him, we were once spiritual lepers, unclean and separated from God by our sins. We were aliens to his kingdom. But because our Lord Jesus humbled himself and descended into our darkness to seek the lost, because he, like the outcast, suffered outside the camp to bear our reproach. We who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. By him, we receive adoption and can cry, Abba, Father. So as we go forth from here, let us trust that God is in control and let us cleave ever closer to him. Let us grow in childlike faith, boasting of his might and not our own. And lastly, we, may we live as heirs of heaven, striving for his kingdom until that last day when our flesh will be made clean. He clothes us in white and make all things new. Let us bow our heads. Father God, thank you for this amazing account of Naaman's healing. A mighty man who was humbled, but also humbled himself before a mighty God. Thank you for your resolve to make the outcast your sons and daughters, to unite us to yourself. So by the Spirit, may we have peace. May we boast in your might, and may our lives proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord and that there is no other. And all of this we pray in his name. Amen.